Hi, I'm Pat Kelly. And I'm Peter Oldring, and we're the hosts of This Is That. Are you kidding? For over a decade, we were radio's go-to source for completely fabricated news. You must be joking me. And now, we're back in podcast form. We've selected some of our favorite stories from over the years and put them in one convenient location. Sugar in the tap water. Bilingual dog park. Charging to see wildlife. This Is That, coming soon on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today on the show, you're going to hear my conversation with the Canadian fashion designer Aurora James, who released a new memoir called Wildflower this past year. She writes about surviving childhood abuse, dropping out of high school, getting arrested, getting out of jail. And then she writes about becoming an incredibly influential voice in fashion. If you're not familiar with Aurora, um, Beyonce, Rihanna, Meghan Markle have all worn her brand at Brother Valley's. But I first became aware of Aurora through this initiative she did called the 15% Pledge. It convinced major retailers like Sephora and The Gap and Indigo, like major players, to stock more products from black-owned businesses. Aurora James single-handedly changed the way they do business and single-handedly gave a lot of black-owned businesses a new opportunity. So in this conversation, Aurora and I talk a little bit about that pledge. We also talk about you know, some of the challenges she faced in life leading up to it. Um, I love any chance I get to speak to this great Canadian. Here's my conversation with Aurora James. How are you? I'm so good, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to unpack some of this with you today. Right, me too. I mean, I mean, right off the bat, Aurora, I mean, I think one of the first lines in the whole thing is, this is not a success story. At least it shouldn't be told that way. Talk to me about that. What, what's wrong with being, a, being seen as a success, a success story? I think so often with memoirs and like the success stories, especially that we read about young women these days, is is it's almost like this bar that everyone else is expected to hold themselves up to, right? Like I kind of grew up in the girl boss era where people were breaking glass ceilings and <laughs> doing all of these things and the expectations just seemed like really unrealistic. And also like everything is a work in progress, right? And I think that this book really articulates how much of a work in progress I am as well. And so I think labeling it a success story feels like really finite, you know? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting thing because the the I think for people who would only know you through um say fashion magazines, people who would know you from reading Vogue or something like that, might be surprised by some of the stories that you, you tell in this book. What talk to me maybe about sharing some of the the messier or or more complicated parts of your life here. Yeah, I think fashion is so notorious for being buttoned up, you know, no pun intended. It's like <laughs> everyone really has to keep their like a costume of identity on straight at all times. And I think it does a disservice to not only like the industry, but also all of the young people who kind of aspire to work in fashion or take their own sense of self-worth or value from the people that they see in the media, whether it's models or celebrities or anything like that, right? And I think for me, as horribly uncomfortable as it was to tell some of these stories and continues to be, um, I just think that we have to normalize like the cuts and scrapes and bruises that we get along our own journey, right? Because if we hide all of those, 
it just makes people continue to feel less than for the things that actually make them great. Well, let's let's talk a little bit. I mean, and, and again, only as much as you want to hear about some of this. So you write in the book about growing up mm-hmm. with a very, very abusive I mean, stepfather. I mean, there were moments it was it was really challenging to read. I mean, much less, I'm sure, live through. And then as a teenager, your frustration with your home life comes out in, in a few different ways. D- tell me a little bit about the more sort of... Um, rebellious things you were sort of going through? Because I was, I was sort of taken aback by, you know, uh, dropping out of high school and trafficking drugs and, and racing cars and, and, and going to jail. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, I think for me, with the driving, the racing cars and all of that, I think I was just, I think it was a form of depression, right? I think I was just dying to try to feel something, anything, and um, maybe playing with my own mortality a little bit, right? I think, you know, selling drugs was really fascinating because it's a thing that so many people turn to, especially people of color when they don't feel like they have a lot of options. And even myself coming from like a fairly privileged background, right? Like ending up in a situation where that was actually the thing that was around me and sort of the easiest to monetize really quickly is, 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 sort of fascinating, sort of disturbing, right? Um, And even dropping out of high school, I mean, I remember sitting in history class and the teacher talking to me about parts of American history and, you know, my mom's voice kind of played in my head with this Nigerian proverb that she always told me, which was, until the lion has a historian, the hunter will always be the hero, And as, you know, strange of a thought as it was for me to have when I was 17, I just thought, like, what kind of damage am I doing to myself by continuing to allow these narratives that are potentially untrue to be forced into my head in this way? And that was sort of what led me to leave. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these were all these were all, I mean, tremendously challenging things. To, to go through, I mean, it, like I said, the the racing cars, like speeding away from a police officer after you got pulled over, um, you know, uh, all, all of these things. But no matter how bad things kind of got and no matter how bad things were at home, you write in the book about taking comfort in just strolling around the mall and looking at clothes. What's your earliest memory of, of falling in love with fashion? Wow. I think it was also even in my mom's closet, right? Just looking at the different colors and textures and flipping through fashion magazines um, and, you know, watching fashion television on TV with Jeannie Becker and and also Tim Blanks and all these amazing, you know, Canada has this very special way actually of embracing fashion. And I remember always watching fashion shows on television, which was really amazing. And it just felt like this very special art form that you could intimately engage with on your body and you could use it as a tool to speak about yourself and what you valued and what you loved, whether it was just a concert shirt from your favorite band, or if it was, you know, indigenous apparel and you're an indigenous person, right? Like you can do so much communicating. And I think in a world where I often felt silenced, especially as a child, right? Um, And even in my adolescence as a student, and then, you know, as a woman always, and then as a woman of color, I felt like, how I communicated with my clothes was an area where no one could stop me or silence me. 
I mean, speaking of fashion television, eventually you get a big break when Jeannie Becker herself helps you get a job at fashion television. I'm Jeannie Becker. Be here Monday at 9.30 for FTV Fashion Television. I'd love for you to tell the story about how you two met. Sure. So I was working at a gym, actually, in Yorkville uh, while I was in college, and the dress code was all black. And so I would really push the limits of finding these, like, obscure like Andy Mulemeister, like Rick Owens, or, you know, these crazy designer thrift shop finds from Kensington Market. And and so I'd have these like giant black bows on my collar or something at like 630, swiping her in, her in for the, the gym every day. And she would sort of laugh at me. And then one day she was just like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just checking you in. And she was like, no, what are you really doing like with your life? You know, and um, I was like, I'm doing school to try to get a job with you one day. And so she kind of took me under her wing. And um, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. What's the most valuable thing you learned while you were working at fashion television? To treat anything that you love with the utmost care. And I think the way in which Jeannie and the whole team at fashion television approached fashion really spoke to its um, value and potential, right? Like I listen to people all the time be like super dismissive of fashion, especially now after launching my nonprofit, I talk to a lot of business reporters all the time and they're like, don't you also work in fashion? You know, and it's kind of, they're like semi horrified. (laughs) And it's sort of like, well, yes. And by the way, it's like one of the largest employers of women around the world and is, you know, trillion dollar industry and we can change hearts and minds all the time and actually have such a huge impact on things that you don't even realize so yes you can be dismissive of fashion but it's perhaps to your own detriment so at at fashion television you you, you're saying that you learn sort of like the care that people can put into these things and how much it can mean to people well Jeannie covered fashion like she would elbow her way backstage into a Marc Jacobs show as though she was a war correspondent, you know, and like get the microphone in front of his face and be like, tell me about, you know, what you're saying on this runway right now. And the the seriousness that she had of like getting to that information, to me at the time I was like, whoa, this is a little bit intense. But she needed to know, right? Because she felt like so much of what we were seeing down the runways was a weather vane for how the country or the world was feeling at that time. And I don't disagree with that. I mean, let, let's fast forward a, a, a little bit to the moment you kind of step out on your own as a fashion designer and you develop Brother Valley's, uh, your own brand. 
around 2011, you were traveling around the African continent. You start noticing the artisans. You start noticing the shoes that they were making. Briefly, can you tell us the concept that you came up with then? Sure. So I fell very much in love with this shoe called a veli or a veldskoon. And um, it was one of the very first shoes that originated on the continent. It started out with just being pieces of leather from animals that they had hunted and eaten being wrapped around the foot. And then it became like three or four pieces tacked together, almost like a moccasin. And then eventually it got a rubber sole and laces. And when British people came to Southern Africa, they saw the shoe, they fell very much in love with it. They brought it back up to the UK and they launched a company that you and I know today as uh, Clark's. Mm. But that desert boot is actually a traditional Southern African shoe shape. And so when I was there, I, I too fell in love with it and I, I started kind of visiting a bunch of different workshops that had a history of, of making these shoes and I would show up at places only to find out that they were closed and had closed years before and I realized um, that it was because they just there wasn't any work um, partially because American and Canadian donated clothing and shoes and all of that was just like killing out the local manufacturing industries and um, you know I decided to take my entire life savings at the time, Tom, which was only $3,500 mm-hmm. and uh, make a batch of shoes with them. And, and I kind of tweaked the colors and the shape a little bit and, um, you know, met with a bunch of different artisans that were there. The Himba women like helped me figure out red dye, which was utilizing the ochre paste that they cover their bodies with. And, and, you know, that was sort of how the first ever brother Veli's collection was kind of inadvertently born. I mean, and then you start selling the shoes at like small markets in in New York City, and then pretty pretty quickly you're in the New York Times style section. Meghan Markle's blog does a write up on you. The artist Micheline Thomas becomes a fan. When did you know that that things were starting to roll in in a way maybe you couldn't have anticipated? You know, like I, I think that I've always had different barometers of what success means with this company. I think for me, it was about how do we actually involve artisan communities around the world in the fashion conversation instead of just having them be on mood boards, right? Um, And how do we engage consumers to start thinking about how they can shop differently, right? And actually be able to shop with their values. And so I started seeing success there. I would say in the first two, three years, I think getting into the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund and having lots of conversations with, you know, some of the most influential people in the fashion industry about what it means to be not just a designer, but also an activist um, was really when I think the sea change sort of happened there. Right. But but at the same time, when you were launching Brother Valley's at the same time, you were sort of getting that advice from, from an encouragement from, from some people in the fashion industry, as you mentioned, like some of the more important people in the fashion industry. You also got a lot of industry advice warning you not to partner with artisans uh, uh, on the African continent. Why did, why did they think this mission was impossible? Why were they warning you against it? You know, I think it's really hard to like scale a business with, um, like that kind of material sourcing and the profit margins are so thin when you're trying to make things all the time. And it really hadn't been done so much before. I mean, there was another brand called Eden, which was started by Bono and acquired by LVMH. And he had made this statement, like maybe the year that I started where he was like, well, African production is really not possible. 
So everyone was sort of like, Aurora, like if LVMH and Bono can't do it, like why are you trying kind of thing? Um, But to go back to like what success means, I think for me, it wasn't that I needed to create a business that was going to be the size of Michael Kors. So I think I, you know, defined success a little bit differently for myself, which is partially why heeding their advice didn't make sense to me at the time. How did you define success for yourself? I think I wanted to keep some of these artisans employed for one. And two, I think just tell the story about Vellies, right? And and um, share them with people that I thought would care in the same way that I cared. You know, they were an incredible shoe. And I think also so much of what I was seeing in Africa, just in terms of like their artisanal talent um, was also on par with, you know, the couturiers like in Paris. And it's like, okay, so why do we value this one set of hands over another set of hands? Um, you know, and when I ended up going on to win the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund in the in this speech, I really kind of accepted the award on behalf of the artisans that I was working with around the world. And I encouraged, you know, my peers in the room, which were some huge designers, to really think a little bit differently about their supply chain. And for all intents and purposes, I really think they have. That's successful to me. Yeah. The sort of big picture pushback is is, is uh, kind of the first thing I asked you about. You know, people were, were talking to you about, you know, is this sustainable? Can you can you do this? Is this is this even doable? And you also, but you write in the memoir really powerfully about how there were a lot of microaggressions against your brand as well, especially from buyers in the fashion industry in those days. What kind of assumptions did you get about your brand? Um, hmm, I think, you know, just on the consumer side, people used to email me all the time and say like, hey, just saw your website, want to make sure this isn't a Nigerian scam. No. Which was crazy. Oh, yeah. I, I would get that email maybe every three days from someone. They would literally be like, I saw your website in the New York Times, but just want to make sure this isn't a Nigerian scam. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, like, you know, a magazine or something would would feature the shoes, and then the comment section would be like, okay, these shoes are made in Africa, so why are they $300? Aren't people there getting paid, like, 15 cents a day? It was stuff like that that was super disheartening, you know? Um, And then, you know, I think I, I go on later to talk about you know, nasty gal and some of the crazy assumptions that even when people are sort of trying to support in, in, in a way like their own unconscious biases kind of flare up. Uh, yeah. That was when nasty gal, who's a, a, a kind of a popular brand, they accused the African artisans of, of shipping shoes with bugs. Right. Right. I mean, that was totally insane. And there would be also what would happen all the time. People would refer to the brand as being like urban or streetwear. And it's like, there's nothing about these shoes that are streetwear, right? Or, 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 or even technically like urban, you know, but it's this association with blackness that, you know, you really start seeing things in people where do they understand the term for what it means or are they just understanding it as a way to other a certain group of people? It's fascinating. 
Another big idea comes to you in 2020. I mean, I think this was the first time you and I spoke on this show. It was uh, You joined the protest after the murder of George Floyd, but you wanted to do something more. We talked about it, but just for, for people who um, may have missed it back then, you came up with this proposal and posted it to Instagram. Do you remember what that post said? Yes. It said, here is one thing you can do for us. And it asked major retailers to commit 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses. And I outlined uh, something that I had just written up in the notes section of my phone an hour before then, all of the ways in which the American economic landscape would be shifted if major retailers committed their actual spending dollars to supporting Black-owned businesses versus just making philanthropic donations to charities. Why do you think that was the idea that came to you? You know, obviously I was running my own business at the time and I was also very um, obsessed with the data that was coming in. It was like 90% of black owned businesses had not had access to the first round of PPP money. The the money that was available for COVID recovery, that kind of thing. Exactly. COVID relief. They didn't get access to the first round of paycheck protection program loans slash grants that were given out because most of those were forgivable. And I think at the time they were projecting that 44% of black owned businesses would be closing as a result of the pandemic, which was like three times the national average. So I was really seeing that the black community was getting exponentially hit. And at the same time, you know, I was having all of these retailers and, and, and corporations, people that I knew, like reaching out to me being like, how much should we donate and where should we donate the money to? And I was like, hmm, interesting you know, and uh, I really appreciate the sentiment and wanting to help and wanting to do something, but is there something more that we can do, right? Because even in my work with Brother Bellies and and echoing what my grandmother used to tell me and my mom as a child, it's like, you can give a man a fish and feed him for a day, you can teach a man a fish Mm -hmm. and feed him for a lifetime. So what does it look like to actually provide opportunity for people in a moment where things feel like they're crumbling? How many brands have signed on at at this point and how's it been going? Oh my gosh. So um, we're about to come up on our three-year anniversary, which is really exciting. We've announced 29 pledge takers. They all sign multi-year contracts with us. Nordstrom, for example, is a 10-year contract. It basically means we come in and kind of audit them and work with them and make recommendations every quarter. And through those contractual commitments that we have, uh, with these 29 companies, we're now in the process of reallocating over $10 billion of annual revenue to Black-owned businesses, which is super, super exciting. Aurora James, thank you so much for making the time for us. Congratulations uh, on your book and, and uh, congratulations on everything. Thank you so much, Tom. It's so nice being here today. Aurora James is a Canadian fashion designer and activist. Her memoir, Wildflower is out now, and that's it for us today. The other conversation we have up today is uh, my conversation from this past year with, we're doing a bit of a, I, can, I don't know if you can tell, I didn't say this in the show, doing a little bit of a best of during the holidays, you know, taking it easy, putting my feet up. Not really, but you know, eating a lot of Vienna sausages. My conversation with the playwright Nick Green, his play Casey and Diana premiered last summer at the Stratford Festival. 
I'm sure you know about this, the, that kind of photo of Princess Diana holding the a, a hand of, a, of an AIDS patient and it really changed the perception of AIDS all around the world. I didn't know that that photo was taken at an AIDS hospice in Canada. And Nick will be here to talk about why he wanted to tell that story. All right, go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.